welcome to High Action. I'm Perry Smith. I'm Will Brom. I'm John Story, and together we're the New West Guitar Group. On today's episode, we're featuring Mike Moreno. A special thanks to our Patreon members and our sponsors who make this podcast possible. For more information on High Action and how you can get involved, please visit www.newwestguitar.com slash highaction. All right. Welcome, everybody. Welcome, all the High Action Knights. That's what I'm calling all of our listeners, the High Action Knights. Like K-N-I-G-H-T-S? It could be either way, though. We've had this discussion. Because if you play with High Action, then you're going to have a lot of knights. Evenings, I mean. We've got way too many play-ons with words with our business, from newest being newest to the newest guitar group. I mean, I don't know, man. Or new... or New West, as in West Montgomery. Yeah, people. Or, West, or the Perry West Co. Guitar Trail featuring Perry West. Yeah, that was an unfortunate booking many years ago. Uh, anyway, welcome to episode 35. We're all very excited you're joining us. Thank you to everyone who's been tuning in week after week all over the world. It's really warming our hearts to see so many of you interested in our podcast. And I think it has a pretty big reason to do with the guests that we have on here, John. Wouldn't you agree? Uh, today, we're pretty excited to feature the wonderful Mike Moreno. And uh, before we were recording this today, I was thinking, you know, what could we talk about that would be interesting to our listeners? And I think something that Moreno really exemplifies that it's really important in being a musician today is your home studio setup. You know, mm-hmm. we've all got to have our gear ready to go, whether it's streaming to play a concert from home, whether it's teaching a bunch from home, whether it's recording from home, you know, you got to really be ready in your space now. John, you have a pretty good setup in your apartment, you know, talk about what you've been able to kind of adjust this year as a result of the pandemic and working from home exclusively. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. I think back in the days, Perry, when we rehearsed with New West early, early, early on, it was more about mobile recording. And so I had like a, I had an M-Audio mobile pre- and two pairs of mics. And I took that everywhere New West rehearsed and right. played concerts right. with my little iBook G4 recording into GarageBand. You'd bring a hard drive and you'd hope that thing wouldn't crash. And we've gone from that to now having to be totally in, in, a, in our home space, not as much mobile recording right now, although I'm sure we'll get back to that again, mobile video, mobile recording, because it almost is synonymous now. You're videoing everything that you're recording. But yeah, it's been fun. I mean, I feel is a way kind of like I've been in a big school of fish. All of us musicians have had to kind of move together and it's, it's, it's fun to see people trying stuff. And Mike has certainly um, set a good example of what it's like just to produce really great concerts from your living room, you know, and some of us can do it a little more than others. I I'm not really in a situation where I can do more than just solo guitar in here. Um, But it it has got me thinking more about like, what's this going to be like in five, 10 15 years is probably going to involve guys like us with the new West on opposite coasts playing at the same time together. I hope, you know, I hope we can get there. Yeah, that would be cool. Um, Will, you've done some streaming shows, you know, I think maybe solo guitar stuff, right? You know, what have you been able to do in your home setup? That's like kind of surprised you to get a good sound and get comfortable, you know, doing a live stream. 
surprised me. I mean, just getting comfortable with hearing my sound through a digital interface, right. honestly, yeah. is just a new thing. Um, whether it's really exposed and really upfront or, or learning how to dial things differently, like you dial your preamp differently than you dial your amplifier in the room. Um, if it's coming out of like monitors versus an actual amp speaker, I mean, it just kind of finely tunes your ear, but I mean, things that I've learned, honestly, I mean, aside from, from getting sounds also just editing music or, or editing audio stems for the podcast, Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. it's been major. And I mean, that's in a way it's dialing in the performance that you're sending out into the world. So Mm -hmm. it is a part of performing in a really weird way is learning how to edit or, you know, or mix your sound for a long-term performance thing. Yeah. No, certainly I agree with this idea of just getting comfortable with your sound. You know, we're all recording from home, and so we're becoming really aware of the sound that we're dialed in. It's that much more consistent. It's not like we're playing at different venues all the time, and your sound is naturally going to change depending on the amp you're playing with or whatever. Um, Yeah, being at home, you have a chance to get a really consistent sound that you're... You know, focused on and certainly Mike Moreno is known for just a really clear sound you know kind of ton of sustain and he was a real pleasure to speak with I think we all enjoyed talking to him we got into some deep places so for the listeners I really hope you enjoyed this episode and check out you know Mike on uh, YouTube check him out on Instagram he's creating a lot of great content and uh, speaking of content we're also doing a lot of content on our Patreon page So if you're interested in hearing us talk about uh, our playing, hear examples of the three of us play, we all have new releases that we're putting out in the world. I have a new album that's coming out, uh, came out last week. So check out our Patreon to get all these kinds of behind the scenes footage and access to the things that we are doing here in New West Guitar Group. And without further ado, please enjoy episode 35 with the great Mike Moreno. So everybody knows everybody, right? Uh, yeah. Will Brom and John Story, they're in L.A. I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm in South Brooklyn. Uh, remind me, oh, Mike, where yeah, are yeah. you? Are you in Bed-Stuy? Is that what it is? Yeah, I'm in Bed-Stuy. That's what I thought. Yeah, you're, you're close to Lunatica, right? Yeah, exactly. Like, uh, I mean, 15, 20-minute walk from there. I think the last time I saw you play was with a quartet of yours at, okay. at Lunatico. The before times, as I like to call it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when, when you could do play a, play a small place like that and be totally like everyone on top of each other. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I was, you know, never, never that comfortable with like certain places. Like even like when I used to go and teach at a temple, you know. Oh, like yeah. I, I was always like, I didn't want to touch anything in a, you know, like college bathroom or something like that. <laughs> yeah. So but now it's even, it's even crazier. But yeah. yeah. Well, now everyone gets to be a germaphobe, so you know, that's yeah. just the way it is. I mean, it's just it's a new outlook on life for some people, and for other people, it's just a more intense way of what they were doing before. You know. So. Right. Right. All those people at Nam, Mike. <laughs> oh man, yeah. Like, How did that, we all not get sick at Nam? We all did. Everybody, <laughs> I think we all got it at Nam. I don't think I did. Oh. <laughs> Knock on wood. 
Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I ever got sick there, but I also never stuck around. Like I would just go in and, and do whatever I really had to do and, and split. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm not. I'm not a gearhead except for now. Like now that I, I'm, I'm regretting all that time, I just ignored all that stuff. I mean, I, you know, yeah. So now I'm, I'm like watching all these YouTube, you know, how to work a, a, a soundboard. <laughs> Seriously, right? Well, speaking yeah. of gear, I, I feel a little outnumbered because I think there's three Marquions happening here, and I just got my trusty 175. But oh well, I got a couple. I got one you can borrow. You can buy if you want. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> borrow buy. I mean, yeah. yeah, borrow sounds great, Mike. Thanks. COVID yeah. discount. COVID discount. Um, so no, I mean, I, I've definitely looked at some of the guitars I have sitting around. I was like. Damn. Yeah, I, I mean, know. Well, my my old vintage, like I have like an old Gibson, like a 1952 uh, LG2 that I, I mean, I I never play it anymore. So uh, that's just like at least a few grand I can get out of that. And it, it, I don't really want. I mean, I like that guitar, but it doesn't play in tune. So yeah, right. It sounds great for like three chords, and then <laughs> then it's like there's one chord. It's like oh god, it's so out of tune. I've noticed the longer you stare at gear that's sitting around the house, the the quicker it starts looking like money. You know, it starts looking like a stack. Of, <laughs> a stack of like it just it takes the form of a stack of Benjamins. You know, you're just like. Well, the, the other thing is, I can always find another one better than the one that I have. Yeah. Like you can, you can always find those guitars if you if you have the money and you're willing to pay for it. Yeah. But, uh, one of the things that we like to do here on High Action, Mike, is try mm -hmm. to kind of get a little context and get to know as we say, the, the player behind the instrument. Okay. And you're really one of the you know, leading voices here on the jazz guitar scene. And I'm, I'm so curious to kind of talk to you about some of your roots and kind of how you got started in the music. I, I know you were born in Houston, Texas. And yeah. uh, I'm really interested in kind of asking you about uh, this high school that you went to, the Performing Arts High School in Houston. And, and the reason is mm -hmm. because I've I've always been fascinated about these specialized arts high schools that have a tendency to produce really great jazz musicians. Places like Roosevelt High in Seattle or even LaGuardia in New York or Loxa in Los Angeles or mm -hmm. uh, Berkeley High in the Bay Area. Right. And uh, I'm actually from the Bay Area and okay. I went to a school called San Rafael High on the other side of the Bay. Mm -hmm. and I, I remember you know, coming up in high school, we had a really great jazz program and all these things at that high school as well but one of the things you do at high school in this time is you, you compete in sort of the regional jazz festivals in your area growing up which are problematic to say the least but mm -hmm. when I was in that uh, area of my life I remember seeing these guys at Berkeley High and you'll probably get a kick out of this the, the Berkeley High combo uh, <laughs> that we would compete against was Ambrose Akamusri Jonathan Finlayson, Charles Altura, his brother Tom Altura, and Justin Brown. Oh, wow. So, <laughs> yeah, that's so, a good you know, those, those guys were a few years ahead of us. And, mm -hmm. you know, seeing them play, I remember being like, wow, okay, these guys are on point. And it was a really, you know, inspiring experience to hear and informative experience to hear at a young age. And I imagine for yourself going to the Performing Arts High School in Houston you had a similar kind of experience being really inspired by the players around you. Would you say that's the case? Yeah. I mean, like when I actually, before I even went there, I went to uh, like the, the spring 
was it this? Uh, no, it was the fall jazz ensemble concert, or fall jazz festival, they called it, like at the high school. And so I was like, yeah, I really want to go to school. Let me check out, you know, the concert. Like, so I went with my parents. And um, at that time, you know, it, it, it's funny, like the only person in that band that's really known in New York now is uh, Eric Harland. Right. But it was Eric, uh, a guitar player who, if any of you guys uh, did go to Berkeley, then uh, Stefan Schultz. I don't know if any, any of you guys knew who Stefan was. Stefan was, was like in high school, was an incredible guitar player. Mm. Um, I mean, he tragically like uh, died at like 25 or 26. Oh, that's so, terrible. That's um, terrible. Yeah. But like in high school, he was playing and then they had like a one of the teachers that was in that was teaching the ensemble uh was a was a young alto player named dave caceres so he looked like a student he was like 23 at the time or something and he was like probably the best saxophone player in houston and yeah and they had another student saxophone player named joseph Behrman that was killing anyway i and um milt hinton was the the guest artist nice so and it was just like so killing. <laughs> and I was just like, oh my God. So I was like so terrified, like when I actually went to audition, because I really didn't know anything about jazz at the time. Like I was 15. Mm-hmm. And I went in and um, I just kind of played like a few tunes, like So What and Well You Needn't. And I can't remember what else I played, just like a blues or something. Uh-huh. And that's how I started there. Like, but when I actually went to the school, you know, there were so many. There was another guitar player named Chris Young who was really great. It's funny. It's a, like this is why I always tell like um, students when I'm, at least young students when I'm teaching them is like, if there's if you go to a situation where like everybody is so much better than you, uh, and there's like two or three years apart, you know, difference of age. I was like, don't at all freak out about that because one, you have you know that's not that much time to catch up. Um, you could easily go from not knowing anything to, to really being able to play on a high level like within a couple of years. Mm-hmm. But also, like, most of the best players that of all the schools that I went to are not playing music anymore. So it was the underdogs that yeah. were, like, that always felt they weren't good enough that were shedding way more than the, the best players because they, they felt they had to prove themselves. But also, it wasn't as easy for them. Yeah, I feel like the people who are super naturally talented, they don't have to work as hard. And then they, at some point they get lazy. <laughs> and then all the underdogs catch up to them. And then all of a sudden they start getting the gigs, you know. So, but it was kind of like that. So my high school, the funny thing about it is that everyone that has a name from that high school wasn't the best player there. That's a really interesting statement yeah. because, you know, I think so much about, this business that we're in is about just sticking with it, you know, and being yeah. kind of like the last man standing and, and right. thinking of it like a marathon, not a right. sprint, you know? And yeah. And it, it's, it's, it's exactly that. I mean, a lot of people, well, you know, tragically either they get really into drugs mm-hmm. and then they, they sabotage themselves or they just have like some kind of crazy personality trait mm-hmm. that doesn't allow them to interact with other people, mm-hmm. even though they're insanely talented, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, or they might have some, you know, like something, you know, something's off, which is why they're so good. But then, you know, they can't interact with social society. So then it's like all the, you know, like I said, it's, it's just this weird kind of thing that happens when you're that young, you know, like high school uh, and like couple first couple of years of college, you know, where like the best players are not necessarily 
uh, going to be the ones that are working in 10 years. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. Yeah. But from my high school, there was, you know, people like Jason Moran, Eric Harlan, they were, at, when they were there, Chris, Dave, and like, well, Chris and Eric were at the school at the same time. So Chris, Dave, Eric Harlan. Wow. Like those guys were the top guys at the high school when I was there. And, and for the most part, I, I eventually, you know, by the time I graduated, there was the other guys that were older than me had graduated. So then the younger players were looking up to me and, and, and Robert Glasper and, you know, Walter Smith and those guys. So, but yeah, it's, it's just crazy to, to think about it. Like our, our Kendrick Scott, for example, you know, who everybody loves the way he plays now. But I remember like in high school and even when I first moved to New York, like, and I just kept hearing about Kendrick because Kendrick was just, he wasn't the best drummer at my high school mm-hmm. at the time. And so what, after I moved to New York, people were like, yeah, man, I got that guy Kendrick is really, really like sounding great. I was like, oh, really? Okay. <laughs> you know, it's like yeah, hard hard to imagine he didn't sound great like just coming right out the womb, you know. But right, I mean, he, what really changed is when he went to Berkeley in his first year at Berkeley. Then he was like a completely different person after that, you know. Like drum, I mean, sound wise and drum wise, you know that that first year of of, of college is like most people grow. They're they're just complete. They sound completely different. Oh yeah, absolutely, yeah. and. That's, that's a great segue into, you know, kind of what I wanted to ask you next. I know that, you know, you moved to New York. I, I think it was around 98. You went to new school. And I'm, I'm always really curious to ask players about some of the early informative years of their more professional type careers. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I made a decision to go down to Los Angeles to study with Joe DiOrio at SC. And what, one thing I've really enjoyed about being in Los Angeles after graduating from there was I had a chance to really get into the scene and start working as a musician, gaining Mm -hmm. experience. And that experience proved to be quite valuable to me when I actually moved to New York in 2009. And um, not to mention John Story and I founded the New West Guitar Group at USC. So uh, it was, you know, just a really incredible experience. But I'm curious to ask you, being in New York, fresh out of new school, there's so much competition, you know, even in the early 2000s, how did you feel like you were, you know, in the scene? Did you feel like you had opportunities to kind of keep advancing yourself and keep uh, building Uh as an artist? Yeah, I mean, I I remember when I first was thinking about moving to New York, and I I was super nervous about, um, you know, coming up here and I, I called Peter Bernstein. I had Peter's, Peter Bernstein's number and I was like, man, you know, I don't know. I really want to move to New York, but you know, it's, I'm just going to be like one of a million guitar players that, that, that can play. And he was like, no, he was like, there's not many. (laughs) He was like, he was the one that kind of gave me the confidence. Like he was like, there's not, not any young guys playing like you. So just come up here. Nice. Uh, he was like, you'll start to work. Like, you're not going to go. Because I was like, man, I don't know how I'm going to make money. And like, he was like, don't worry about that. He was like, you'll, you'll start working. You just got to come up here. And because um, at the time I was just like, how, how am I ever going to get a gig over like Peter Bernstein? You know, it's like, because right. when you move to New York, you kind of realize that those guys are playing, a, you know, the same kind of clubs that you're going to play in a couple of years. It's like mm-hmm. everybody's doing, unless there's like Pat Metheny or something like that. But like, you know, Peter Bernstein, Kurt Rosenwinkel at the time, Adam Rogers, yeah, uh, Ben Monder, uh, Kreisberg was was already in, in town for a few years when I moved here. 
but those guys were working all the time. And so you're just kind of trying to work. How, how am I going to start working with, in the same venues as, as these guys, you know? Um, but a lot of it for me was just like kind of networking at school and hanging out at the clubs, getting to know all the players, um, kind of getting super inspired to practice and, you know, really learning how to play. Because I, I could play the guitar when I moved to New York, but I couldn't play music on a high level. You know, like that was the thing. Like when I moved to New York, everyone just sounded so natural and, and musical. And so um, I kind of like had, I was missing that. Like I had all the technical stuff and I, I could like play the guitar, but it's another thing to really, really be able to be spontaneous and play music and write music and have a voice and all that stuff. So yeah, those first couple of years in New York was just uh, trying a lot of different approaches and like meeting a lot of different people and uh, playing a lot of really terrible gigs you know in, in order to like work your way up the ladder and stuff like that but those those first few years I, I i mean i sounded different every three months yeah that's interesting i mean i i sort of feel like there was a, a somewhat of a similar experience when i moved you kind of have to sift your way through a lot of terrible gigs before you can kind of like work your way into some territories that you want um, yeah and reminds me a little bit when i was in la of the first time I think I heard you on a recording, and this is not um, terrible by any stretch of the imagination. This is a John Ellis record that I still listen to. <laughs> oh, the By a Thread record. Quite a yeah. bit, By a Thread. Yeah, exactly. And I think uh, By a Thread, yeah, I think it was a 2006 release. I, I was uh, just getting out of college, and I remember hearing this album. And one of the things that I was really impressed by, obviously, was your clear articulation, you know, mm. the way you had sort of a modern way of phrasing yeah and i noticed that hearing your sound on that those recordings it's so different there are certainly similarities but your sound is certainly honed over the years and i just wanted to ask you a question about you know the journey that you've gone on really honing your sound and if you can speak a little bit about you know that process for you over the years um yeah i think around that time that we did that record like the buy a thread record was right around the time that I started um, like really getting into like acoustic guitars uh, and trying to get, that was around the time I was really trying to get the gig with, um, with Liz, right? You guys know that. Uh, oh Liz yeah, sure. Super great singer. But I love her record, like with the Brian Blade Fellowship Band mm -hmm. and um, that record that Brian produced. And I was just like, man, that's, I just want to play some music like that. At that time, I mean, that was like 2000, 2003, 2004. Uh, so I was kind of like a little bit, not I don't want to say bored, but like I felt like in order for all the stuff that I was playing at the time to get better, I needed a different approach. So um, the, uh, there was a point in time where I just never picked up the electric guitar at home. You know, I would play gigs, but at home, I almost never turned on the amp, and I would just play this uh, still string acoustics that I had. And, um, and I was checking out, like, all the Joni Mitchell stuff, Nick Drake, um, learning those kind of tunes and, like, trying to write music that was semi-inspired by that and all the jazz stuff that I was checking out. Um, and then I learned all the Liz Wright music and, um, and got that gig after, you know, hanging around her gigs for, you know, a few shows, like, talking to her. And then finally she came to see a show of mine, 
and and hired me. And then that's really when stuff started to change because then I was touring, playing that music every night. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, having a singer, like, really get in your, not get in your face, but, like, it's, they don't care, like, how many notes you're playing or what, you know, what scale you're using. They just want it to feel good, you know, and, and it's like a different... And they want the sound to be good. So right, especially someone like Liz Wright, you know, uh, you know, not every singer is going to be exactly like her. I, you know, I've definitely worked with a lot of vocalists, and some of them have wanted me to play more notes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I wanted it to bring more fire, I guess, so to speak. But well, yeah, if they if they want you to play, yeah, if they want it to be like rocking, that's another thing. But I, I felt like with her, she was always like, she at the time she was so into Cassandra Wilson. And yeah. and so was I. So that was perfect. Like I mean, just like all the stuff, you know, the, that those records, like the guitars, like the the Craig Street produced records. Mm-hmm. Like I really got into that stuff. <clears throat> so um, that's kind of what changed my playing from just being like this kid who was a fan of jazz to moving to New York to just playing all these like kind of hip modern jazz gigs to just stripping it down a little bit and just playing mostly acoustic guitar live learning how to do that and try to get a good sound live just acoustic guitar and stuff like that and and then when i did play electric it was more about colors and not about anything else really it's just like tone and 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 texture so it was that completely changed my playing from like 2003 to 2005 you know the end of 2005 Today's episode of High Action is brought to you by Henriksen Amplifiers. So we've used Henriksen now exclusively in the New West Guitar Group since about 2013. The amps are fantastic. They have a real natural sound to them. And if you're a guitar player who cares about the way that your archtop guitar just sounds uh, in of its own, it's a great amp to check out. They're also incredibly durable, really gig-worthy. Uh, it's a great amp to have around, uh, even if you're used to playing through tubes. Um, we really dig them. They're very consistent, even, and they sound beautiful. So if you want more information on the Bud, the Blue, the Bud 10, the Blue 10, the Forte, or other products that Henriksen makes, check them out online at www.henriksenamplifiers.com three of us in the new west guitar group we know how challenging it can be to get a good acoustic guitar sound live (laughs) yeah and i think that the more you can hone in on that and the elements that go into that it's only going to improve you know your your vision of a sound on an electric instrument you know so that sounds exactly so so then my touch changed and and there was a point where i I only practiced ballads and stuff like that like Mm -hmm. really really trying to work on just playing melodies like and things like that mm-hmm. which yeah. i had never really done in the past it was more about all the improvisation stuff and you mm-hmm. know yeah it's it's it is a consistent sort of journey that we hear from a lot of guitar players that we've been fortunate enough to talk with is that sort of mm-hmm. moment where you you sort of transition into really focusing on your sound and making yeah. that the foundation of how you're approaching music oftentimes opens some beautiful doors um, right exactly well, speaking of beautiful doors, actually, uh, I want to talk a little bit about a record you're on by Aaron Parks. Uh, okay. Oh, yeah. The, the Door series. Yeah, the Door series. <laughs> he likes to take photos of doors. But this particular record, I know you're probably aware of this, is uh, Invisible Cinema. Mm-hmm. And it was another record that I heard you on that I, it was really influential. And 
it's just full of so many amazing compositions and it might be a little too soon to say but i i think this record you know will stand the test of time i really do i think it you know may have a really significant impact on sort of defining modern jazz as we know it moving forward um and one of the themes we have on this podcast is talking about musical collaborations Mm-hmm. Uh, we've had one for a very long time and I know that you've worked with Aaron Parks a lot and recorded some great music with him and I'd just love to hear you talk a little bit about the musical connection between you and Aaron and kind of how that record came about uh, yeah that um, I first played with Aaron it was a very random gig it was, uh, you know and he it was at the time where like Aaron was just happy to play gigs and he brought a keyboard and like, I couldn't even imagine like trying to get Aaron to bring a keyboard to a gig now. Yeah. Like he won't even play the, he won't even play a gig if he doesn't like the piano at the venue. But like, uh, but yeah, I met him at a time where he was really young. Um, I mean, so was I, I must've been like 25, 24, mm-hmm. but he was, he would have been 17 or something, you know? Right. Yeah. Uh, when he was just got, had gotten the gig with, uh, Terrence Blanchard. So we did a gig, and immediately I, I loved his playing. Um, and then we kept in contact. I kept calling him for gigs, and then he started calling me for stuff. Um, and then <laughs> then he started dating Liz Wright. Oh, okay. So, so, I, so I had Aaron on a gig. You know, it, it was kind of just like, oh, Wow, Aaron's dating Liz right now. This is perfect. <laughs> I was like, so I was. Uh, I mean, I was already calling Aaron. It's not like I was calling him to get the gig with Liz right, but I was also sure, telling Aaron, "Sure, yeah, oh, man, sure. tell your girl." Like, <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so Liz came. He brought Liz. Well, Liz came to see my band with Aaron, and then he she heard us play a tune of mine called "Still Here." It's on my first record. It's like a duo tune. And she, after the gig, she was like, oh, I love that tune. I love you guys playing together. She was like, I'm going to call you. And she did. So, um, but anyway, me and Aaron have been playing together since, yeah, around 2003, 2004, really 2004. Invisible Cinema was recorded in 2008, I believe. But up to then, we had just played a few gigs, like some of my quartet gigs in New York and some of his at the jazz gallery pretty much all of them were at the jazz gallery that was a venue and smalls you know that we were playing all the time and invisible cinema kind of came about and aaron it was so organized with that record like he had you know like uh, midi tracks for everything um with all the guitar sounds and he was just like this is what i'm hearing on this uh especially something like nemesis like uh that song where Basically, I was just trying to get the sound that he had on the on on the MIDI track, wow. uh, which was kind of very nasally, like a mm-hmm. overdriven sound. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't. The funny thing about people always talk to me about that track, but I, I I can't stand the guitar sound on that track. And and I I remember when he was mixing it, I was like, man, we got to fix the guitar track. He's like, no, no, I'm gonna leave it the way it is. I was like, oh my god, <laughs> um, I I just didn't like. I love that tune, and I love. Uh, everything else around it, but I, I was—I don't know—I felt like I, I wish I could reamp. Man, it's so funny. I, I like what I played on the album. I just don't like the way it sounds. It's so funny to hear you say that because when I first heard that, I was like, "It doesn't sound like I know he sounds in a way." You know what I mean? Yeah. But I love the way you played on it, and the more I've heard it, of course, I've just grown to really enjoy it. Um, but that really is a great record. So I just want to let you know that how, how much I enjoy it, and that I think it's really going to be something that sticks around 
Yeah, I, I, I hope so. I mean, um, yeah, I, I, I love the tunes on that record. And, it, you know, that band is, is so great mm-hmm. uh, with Eric. And, and, and just for the, the time we did it, you know, it was still like we were really in, into that sound. And, like, um, it, it didn't take, you know, I think we had one rehearsal okay. at Aaron's before the date. Like, I went in, just me and him. And we played through the tunes, and then we went in the studio. I don't think we... I didn't have a rehearsal with the whole band, you know. He just kind of showed me the tunes one day, because it all happened super fast. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, yeah, like the next day, basically, we were in the studio recording it. And, I mean, he had the order. He was like, he only knew the order of the songs. Um, he had everything mapped out like he had the vision complete and yeah, that's, yeah it that's... was it was pretty much complete i think he changed a couple of the titles but that okay. was it well that's it's lo- lovely to hear about that it's, it's one of my favorite new records and mm-hmm. uh speaking of great records you have uh many of your own and i wanted to take a moment here just to highlight something from uh, your recent album three for three we were talking about yeah. this this mm-hmm. release it's from 2017 yeah, again, you know, one of the things I, I've always admired about your playing is you have like a, a modern way that's sort of founded in the tradition. Mm-hmm. And I think that this record kind of represents a lot of that. It's, there's a lot of great swinging stuff happening on here with uh, your approach as well. So let's take a quick listen to this, if you don't mind. This is a, a Wayne Shorter tune. I'm going to play a little clip of it here, if that's all right with you. It's called The Big Push. Cool. Thank you. 
yeah, Mike. Man, great stuff. <laughs> really, really burning. That, stuff. that was that was the sound check. Was it really? That was, that was us getting levels. Yeah, that that track. <laughs> and then, and then um, later, uh, you know, on the playback, we were listening to it, and and um, Jerry Teakins was just like, "No, that's the tick." <laughs> but I, you know, it's like I kind of messed up the melody, like going in. I was like, "Ah, oh, whatever," you know. <laughs> it doesn't have right, to be. Man. It doesn't have to be perfect. You know what I mean, John? Yeah. Exactly. I mean, yeah. Yeah, and um, it's interesting. There's so many recordings we don't realize that are that. You know, like I didn't realize for a long time that Joe Pass's Virtuoso was his sound check. He went to United to go test the mics the night before oh, wow. record, and the Pablo Records owner was like, "Joe, that's the album," and he was so upset because he was like, "That's not the record. We that's the sound check," and they'd only put the mic on his guitar. And there's so right. much about that album, Virtuoso. Um, and even, you know, in the Grant Green biography, Shroni Andrews Green, when she's interviewing one of Grant's sons, it might be Greg, is talking a lot about how his dad would come back from those sessions at Rudy's place and how a lot of them were just, Rudy would always pick the takes that the guys didn't like. You know, oh, really? Records. I often <laughs> wonder what, what takes Grant liked because Street of Dreams, Matador, all these albums are such brilliant perfect records in my mind yeah yeah um but man it's just such a pleasure to have you on our podcast mike i feel like we've had a fun connection the last half a decade with um the great guitar maker steven marchione and you know you really uh in a way kind of convinced me to invest in one of his instruments i had fallen in love with his guitars when i was in high school after reading about him in jazz times and about 1999 when he built the guitar in tribute to Jim Hall's DeQuisto. Mm -hmm. uh, and I had a couple questions about Stephen, but before I ask you about that, uh, you know, something that's interesting, Mike, your right hand is so, is so wonderful. As a guitar player, it's so interesting to watch and check out your picking technique. Um, when I was a younger guitar player, I started off not using a pick at all and only playing nylon string. I played classical guitar all the way up even into high school. And it was tough because I'd go to jazz camp and try to play in these combos like unamplified on a nylon string. And finally yeah. the teacher was like, man, you, you got to start using a pick and you got to get yourself something to plug in with. And I got an Epiphone Dot, which I know was a guitar you had too for a while, right? No, I, I only had... The only guitars I've had uh, were I had like a Yamaha, mm -hmm. uh, basically like remake of a like a L5. Oh, okay, yeah. That they actually had to stop making because some kind of like a patent thing, <laughs> and then um, <laughs> right, right. So then I had that like all through high school, first year of New York. Then I got a, a 335 dot like from uh, 88, 1988, that's, and, and that's, that's what, what I played. That's what's on Invisible Cinema and like all those records. And then after that, like uh, I was playing a duo gig with Aaron Parks when I met Steven and he came to the gig and he was just like, I'm going to make you a better 335. And I was like, okay. And that was the Very first time he, de he designed the, the semi. Yeah. Yeah, man. And actually, <laughs> yeah, exactly. it's good to talk about this too first because I want to ask about the picking technique a little bit. But um, in terms of Steven, you know, he's one of these makers that I feel like builds the guitar with, really with the music and the player in mind, even though he, he definitely knows how he wants to build it. I mean, he has a vision for sure, 
but a lot of luthiers seem to make guitars just because they think they look pretty or this is the way they're supposed to be built or you know right. and i i love how he like experiments with stuff and ha- have there been some instruments over the years that you've talked to him about building that maybe didn't come into fruition i know he's building some cool solid bodies right now i saw you're playing a les paul style yeah the les paul is awesome um I just kind of told him like what I wanted out of a 335 and that was really the only one that we really kind of went back and forth on. Um, I mean, all his acoustics that he's, he's, uh, that I've played, like the one that I have, that's kind of like a, basically a classical guitar, uh, with steel strings on it. Um, I mean, I love that guitar. Um, but I would have never thought of that like as a, as an idea, like, Oh, like, why don't you build a, you know, one of your like, Spanish guitars are, are a classical guitar and just put steel strings on it. I mean, I was telling him uh, about building like a cutaway, kind of like a, you know, just a classic, like steel string, like dreadnought kind of vibe. Like, but then he ended up doing it his own way, like the 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 OMC. Like those are amazing. Um, but I, I still don't have one of those. But like, yeah, the, I would just say like the only one that we really were like emailing each other about and talking on the phone was the that first prototype for the the semi hollow body. Yeah. But still, I mean, like like you said, he's he's very much like has his vision, and he's willing to like listen to people <laughs> about. Uh, uh, but he's still going to build a guitar he wants to build. I know, yeah. man. I know. Yeah. When, we, when we built my sixteen, I said, "Look, I really want a guitar with a pickup that's in the top of it because." I've been L- I play an L5 and that's that's the thing. He's like, "Nope, that's not what I do." And I was like, "Okay." And then he then he called me. He's like, "Actually, maybe this is the guitar to try that on finally." And we went back and forth for weeks and weeks and finally came the day where it was the day where we had to decide. I mean, the top was cut. Are we going to do this or are we not going <clears> to <throat> pick up in it? And I know. can't think of many luthiers that make an instrument that I want to play. Like, I mean, I had tried other ones before. That's why when I met Steven, I was just like I was like, you can build whatever, what you know, go ahead. But I, I'm most likely not going to play it. And then he was like, okay, we'll see. <laughs> you know, kind yeah. Of like, yeah, he's a special then, one for sure. I yeah. Agree. But I mean, there's, there's only a couple of guys, like I, I've really played their guitars and been like, holy shit, like I would I'd definitely play this, you know, like, and he's like every guitar he makes, is just, you pick it up and it's incredible. Yeah, it's on fire. I agree. And he's getting yeah. better. Like every guitar he makes is better than the last one, you know. I know, and his finishing and just everything, the attention to detail is just, it's incredible. So I'm glad we could give a plug to him today for the listeners. Go check out Marchione Guitars, of course. Um, and real quick, too, before I pass it along and further our interview here, about, about that picking technique. Um, so this middle finger picking technique that you use, was that, has that always been the way that you picked, or was that something that you've developed because as i was about to say when i started using a pick i was using my middle finger too until i had a teacher come along and say nope you got to use your first finger and i often wonder because i i like sometimes experimenting with that using the middle finger with a pick especially a larger pick right um that was something that i didn't even notice i was doing until while i was at new school there was another guitar player that came up to me and he was like man why do you hold the pick with your middle finger. And I was like, what are you talking about? He was like, yeah. He was, I was like, I don't. I hold it the normal way. He was like, no, just play. Start playing. And I started playing, and I was like, oh, shit, you're right. You know, like, I didn't even notice that I had been doing that. And then later I, I thought about it. I was like, why, why would I do, you know, why does this feel so much better? But, I mean, the middle finger is literally the middle of your hand, so it just feels more balanced mm-hmm. to me. It's like... I feel like I have more control of it. Rather here, 
it's kind of like you're you're holding something really heavy over your head, like to the side, where, as opposed to like holding it right. Mm-hmm. You know, so for me, it just feels like I have more control and and like the pick is more centered, and I don't have to move my wrist at all almost when I play it. Yeah, so it's, it's all the motion is just done with either moving the hand up and down, and everything else is just small movements within the hand, and but none of it is really wrist. I suppose it forces you to build some technique with the pinky too in the right hand also if you want to be able to hybrid pick a certain way with that. Well, I use the pinky to 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 anchor. Uh-huh. And and the only thing that uh, that was weird about when I started playing the Marchioni was there's there's no pick guard. So then all of a sudden that I couldn't anchor my my pinky to the to the pick guard. So then it had to be on the body which was another, you know, quarter inch like Mm-hmm. further down which i had to adjust the way that i was playing and it's still a little bit weird for me because <laughs> right. i played for like basically you know 12 years like that and i've only been playing in marchioni for 10 years you know yeah man. yeah well that's great it's just interesting to hear you talk about that thank you so much man i'm gonna pass it back here i believe to perry perry you're gonna uh, get to play another track here yeah we'd love to just feature uh, another recording um of yours sure. mike this was something that uh, we were discussing from your album Lotus from 2016. Uh-huh. Uh, it's really, really beautiful recording. And uh, this is the track called Epilogue, The Rise. And I think it shows some other aspects of your artistry, uh, compositions, and different kinds of guitar playing. So let's take a quick little listen and we can discuss a little bit here. Okay.
Man. Yeah, yeah pretty happy. I love the I love the drama, the drama in your compositions. Do you do is that a conscious decision with like, I mean I, I think it's a subconscious decision where it's like I can't really write the other side of it, you know, like, uh, like going like, uh, I used to be able to write like that, but I, I can't anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like where, where I would write something that was like maybe more like a harmonic or like, or mm-hmm. intervallic or, or, you know, kind of like tricky melodies and stuff like that. But those don't just don't come out. I would really have to try to do that now. I know, I know what you mean. And that's, it's, <clears throat> It's great hearing and even like you layering parts and like orchestrating, you know, mm-hmm. in a sense where orchestrating in the studio is much different than orchestrating live while improvising. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I always felt like if you have a good studio, like if you're, you got to take advantage of it. I mean, just any, if you're in the studio, then make a record that is a studio record and not a live record, you know? Yeah. That's such a great point. Or like, like, um, you mentioned Pat earlier, like he's saying, like using the studio as an instrument. Yeah, you know, it's so cool, man. Um, man, we got to hang really briefly in uh, December. I don't know if you remember. Right. I took a yeah, lesson yeah, of you. Course. Yeah, man. I came over to the place, and you offered me espresso, but of course, I already had it because I'm a coffee <laughs> addict. But yeah, man. Um, yeah, man, I've also been really following your um, standards from film. Oh, okay, yeah. Which is so great. I just yeah, love to kind of ask fun, you man. a little about that. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, that was like an idea that's kind of been floating around in my head for a couple of years. And I was, at first it was just fun. It was like, let me just do this just to show like uh, a lot of my students and also just anyone else who was interested. Um, Cause it was like, just this thing of like, it didn't matter what level you're at, you know, like it's, it's just like anything else. It doesn't matter how much history, you know, if somebody else tells you a new piece of history, you're always going to be like interested in it. It's not going to be like, oh, I already know enough history, you know, like I don't need to know that. Or, but it was more like, yeah, it was more like of a thing of like the, wow, check out all this cool stuff. Like, why, how are how are these songs so so popular now? Like, uh, especially in the education side. So it started there with like let's uh, kind of an investigative. Uh, approach to like trying to figure out how these certain songs became so standard and why are they so uh, popular among students to play uh and and sometimes maybe the only repertoire they have you know and they never really go beyond that so it started there uh like trying to see like actually what is the real uh harmony for like the songs when they were written who wrote them like why they were written who were they written for or what films or whatever and stuff like that. Yeah. And it, it just, it just went down this rabbit hole of like, you yeah. know, going all the way back to the sources. I mean, and by the end of like, I started, um, it was originally like I was going to do everything in my own time and kind of like pitch it to a school, like mm-hmm. a school that had like something like NYU where they have like a, a theater department, they have a film score department and they have a jazz department. Um, so I was like, that would be perfect, like as an elective class where like, you can have students from all these different art areas, like uh, our degrees taking class. Uh, and then the pandemic hit. And in April, I was like, well, I need to finish these other songs that I've been planning to do. So I just did that and started the, the, the series again, just on Instagram, just the charts. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I did that in April. And then in May, I was like, wow, this is still going on. Like all of my shows 
have been canceled through September at that point, like when May came. So I was like, I need to find a way to pay my bills. So then <laughs> yeah. I was like, I'm just going to do the course because a couple of people had already asked about it. Like uh, they were already interested in it, like um, Temple University, but they just couldn't do it with such short notice. So then I was like, I'm just going to do it on my own. And I did it. And it was like, cool. It was like paid for like all the work that I had lost basically. And I got funded like all this new gear I have like at home. And um, so it, it ended up being pretty successful, like, uh, and getting me out of this, like taking away all that anxiety about losing like five months of work. So how has, diving into like you know the information behind the curtain i mean we we all have come up learning these songs and we love them and we play them but like learning the context and even even just listening to the original orchestrations of of the tunes like i remember when i heard if i were a bell in guys and dolls i mm-hmm. saw the musical and i was like man right. it's so funny it's it's the tune but like it just sounds more you know i guess for lack of a better word orchestral even in the way that everything blends together how has that kind of influenced your connection with with like playing standards now um i think well the harmony aspect is always interesting so that uh, just just helping me understand harmony a little bit better like how it started how it and then how people changed it but it's all of it can be related to the original like it's all these really kind of smart little tricks that people threw in to to do the same basic harmony but more jazzed up uh, mm-hmm. for lack of a better word right um and it, it didn't mean that they hipped them up it actually is a little bit of the difference like, right or the opposite way like they kind of like trick them out in a, in a in a more like approachable way actually mm-hmm. like uh, so simplified it, yeah it's almost like uh, yeah exactly like simplifying the tunes a little bit and making them less classical sounding Mm -hmm, Uh, mm -hmm. and more like music you heard in the clubs you know like more bluesy more uh kind of bebop oriented and stuff like that so it's cool to look at the harmony in that context but the other side of it was uh seeing the the characters that the music was written for like the the actual because the films are different than the broadway show because the broadway show Mm -hmm. no one at the time really knew who was going to be cast uh, or or maybe they knew but then, you know, and then there's other casts, you know, there's like, mm-hmm. so then the, the characters are always changing faces. But like in a, in a context of like Stella by Starlight or Laura or My Foolish Heart or something like that, where, you know, the composer was there on set. He saw the main character, saw the star and went home and started writing a tune. And you see the face of the actress that he wrote the song for, like Stella, Gail Russell, Laura, uh, Jean Tierney, you know, uh, and and all these kind of characters, you can see the women that the songs were written for, or the story that the song was written for. And so now that I, when I play those songs, I kind of think of them. I don't think of Miles Davis or Bill Evans anymore. Right. That yeah. that was my frame of reference now. But like now, I think of it probably the way that they thought of it. If you think of like Bill Evans playing Days and Wine and Roses, I don't. I mean, what else could he have thought about in his head? Pictures in his head other than um, the movie. Right. Sure. So then it, he didn't have a, that reference of like, he was the first pl- person to really play that tune, you know, or one of the first. Right. So yeah, it, it's kind of just going back and, and getting a little bit of a more kind of pop culture context of, of the, of the, the original intent of the song. 
So it's just different uh, visuals in my head now when I when I play the tunes, and they also mean something different now. Um, and I, I think it's cool just to show that to people because it's not just one-sided where it's like all these really hip, like Joy Henderson playing Days and Wine and Roses. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, it's it's amazing. But think about the, the context of the Where movie, like how that. deep it is and, you know, how deep, like all of, a lot of those songs are. Like they're, they're not like a, most of them are not happy-go-lucky songs. You know, it's like right. super depressing. Yeah. You know, you know Gail Russell that, you know, I, I try to tell, <laughs> I mean, it's really dark, but like she felt that song was written for her, Stella by Starlight. And, you know, from 1944 when it was written and that was her first movie, and then she died 20 years later. Um, and, you know, she always considered that her, her song and her tra- life was kind of like tragic. And, and she basically like the night before she died, like called the radio station and, and had them play it and then drank herself to death. It's like oh that God. having that, con- do it. that context for those songs and like to, to know that Stella by Starlight, like, someone felt that that was her song and it was like, this is the last thing I want to hear before I like kill myself. Like it's crazy, man. It's it like, is, man. Yeah. I mean, yeah, these tunes are, are powerful and I'm curious what you get. You know, I love asking people that, that are both play the jazz repertoire and are composers. What do you get out of playing standards that's different from composing and playing your own music? Cause I'm sure you'd agree. It's, you get different things. Yeah, it's. I would say it's like. It's definitely different worlds. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like. It, it's when I'm playing my music, I feel at home with it, and I feel very much in my own world. But when I'm playing standards, I feel like. It, it feels more like repertoire. So it, it's um, it's a little bit more fun in that way i don't know it feels like (laughs) engaging yeah it's it's that thing it's more playful right yeah because that's a common ground you can immediately connect with anyone anywhere at right you know wherever you're playing i I feel like if i did a whole set of all original music which i almost never do Mm -hmm. um I feel like that is it's very one-sided. So I like to break it up. Like I'll throw in a, a either just a standard ballad or a standard like tune swinging, you know, just to break up the vibe of this kind of like dramatic or cinematic kind of like uh, feeling like from from that music like it's it's too much for the audience I think to yeah. do a whole, to do a whole hour and 10 minutes of that or something like that. It's like if you if you throw in a good 10 to 15 minutes of release where the band also gets a release i feel like that that's always worked for me and and even when i'm a sideman and we just play all of the band leaders music back to back back to back i never really feel like that connects as much as just giving the audience a little bit of a of a break from all the density that that's in like the modern kind of way that people are writing now i agree yeah, I, I saw you at Lunatico a, a couple, a few years ago. I remember you played a time for love. Yeah, have you recorded that? I, I don't know if you recorded it's that, but the, I, it always it's stuck on the with three me. for three album. Yeah, yeah, man, it's beautiful, and I hadn't really checked that song out. So you kind of really, you know, introduced me to that tune. Yeah, so. that's going to be in the next series of uh, standards from film. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, there, it's. I don't know. I'm kind of 
getting off track now, but that song's funny because it feel like there there's a zillion different ways to play the harmony under that melody. Mm-hmm. Right? There's yeah, yeah. But it's I do it pretty much. It actually, uh, at the time I did it, I hadn't seen the movie, uh, but coincidentally just recorded it in the same key that it's in the movie. <laughs> nice. So nice. It, it makes sense. It was just like, why does this song feel so good in E major? I don't know. And then I watched the film. It's in E major. <laughs> <laughs> love it. I love it. Man, what a pleasure getting to chat with you and, and hang a little bit, man. Yeah, for sure. Seriously. Man. All right. Well, yeah. um, yeah, speaking of a time for love, let's uh, count it off right here. One, two, yeah. one, two, three. <laughs> time. Yeah. It's always funny, you know, people do that when we're, we're talking about the context of these great songs and it's like people will count wine and roses off, you know, fast or they'll do yeah, they'll play, you know, super yeah. quick and I mean, seven. Yeah. Not exactly. I mean, I had a student over here yesterday and, and he's going to Manhattan School of Music and I had watched his jury tape because everything last semester was like the all the juries were uh, filmed and then they sent us the videos because of the COVID thing so um i was like yeah i watched your jury and you played days of wine and roses like really fast you didn't ever really play the melody um and then i played him the the the, the film score and he was just like blown away and then i played him like three other versions of it slow with all this different harmonies and he was just like wow like he had never even thought yeah. that there's he just thought like it's it's like the days of wine and roses just popped out of the real book like it was born there you know it's like <laughs> popped out of the i real book you know i was like no man this is like a, 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 a yeah the i real book yeah uh it was like no that's that song is crazy that movie is insanely depressing mm-hmm. i mean yeah. it, it's it's an amazing movie too and like uh yeah just Henry Mancini scores is incredible. Like yeah. that, that cool. especially the end of the film. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, just to try to uh, wrap things up here, I know that we want to be respectful of your time, and, and you know, geez, we could probably talk to you for another hour. But well, just a, a final question here. We we like to ask all our guests this, uh, considering the name of our podcast. Uh, where do you place your action, uh, Mike Moreno? Is it high, low, medium? It's it's right in the middle. It's definitely not low. Uh, but the the thing about the Marchioni necks that is that they're so straight that even if you have high action, it feels pretty easy to play. Yeah. Um, but the action's definitely not low. Yeah. It's I would say it's right in the middle. Nice. Yeah. I mean, usually, I mean. Uh, a regular guy, like just without even asking, like a a, a good luthier, or, uh, you know, person working on my guitars, will will pretty much have it set. Like when I walk in, it I can play it. And I might ask them to lower it a little bit, you know, but like, yeah. So it might be just like hair under where where people usually just will normally set it. Mm-hmm. But but not much. It's almost always like a. You know, Stephen sets it up most of the time. Okay. And Stephen yeah. loves a, a, like he wants a, all his sounds, uh, all his guitars to sound huge. Yeah. So he puts kind of like heavy strings on on the acoustics right off the bat, and and the action is high. Yeah. Um, but I can still play them. But the, but I would say like usually when Stephen sets it up, he'll set it up a little bit lower than he he normally does. Yeah. Interesting. But his acoustics, they all have the action that he, he put on them because I would have to actually get him to file down right. the, the, yeah, the bridge. 
that, that could be a tough ask. But well, um, it has been such a pleasure to get to speak with you for this hour. Thank you so much for joining us on High Action. Uh, I hope the rest of the year uh, goes well for you. Uh, these are crazy times we're living in. So be safe, <laughs> take care of yourself, and uh, keep playing great music, man. We're, and we're looking forward to what's coming up next for you. Cool. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right. Yeah, man. Mike. <laughs> Good Thank to see you. all you guys. Take yeah, care. We've got an amplifier out here in L.A. whenever you need it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely need that. Well, as long as it's a polytone or a vibrolis. That's all. <laughs> <that's right. laughs> yeah, no, those are both great. Thanks again for joining us for another exciting edition of High Action. We'd like to take this moment to thank our sponsors for making this podcast possible, especially those who follow us on Patreon. If you'd like to join us, visit us at www.patreon.com slash newwestguitargroup. There you can subscribe monthly to our Patreon page and get exclusive content from today's podcast. Lastly, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts for all the future episodes. Once again, I'm John Story with New West Guitar Group, and thanks for joining us on High Action.